I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Rebecca McKinnon. Rebecca McKinnon is the author of Consent of the Networked, The Worldwide Struggle for Internet Freedom. She worked as a reporter at CNN for a decade, rising to Beijing and then Tokyo bureau chief. She is co-founder of the international citizen media network, Global Voices, and is currently a Bernard Schwartz Senior Fellow at the New America Foundation, where she conducts research, writing, and advocacy on global internet policy, free expression, and the impact of digital technologies on human rights. Please give a warm welcome to Rebecca McKinnon. Thanks very much, and, and thanks to Zocalo Public Square for having me here today. It, it's, it's actually, I, I just have to say, my, my family and friends have been teasing me uh, about the location of this this event because I've never owned a car in my life. And, you know, I'll, I'll rent a car, and then somebody would ask, well, what make is the car? I'm like, I don't know. You know, uh, So it's, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm getting a lot of flack from... Uh, from from people close to me about they, they think it's just the most ironic funny thing, um, but but at any rate, um, I'm here to talk about the internet, not about cars. Thankfully, because uh, that would be pretty funny. Um, <laughs> and um, the the book I've I've just uh, written, um, I begin it with a story um, from my time as a journalist in China. And I was actually working in China when the internet first arrived there. And we assumed that at the time uh, when people started using emails, started being able to create websites and, and so on, that there's no way the Chinese Communist Party can survive this. Um, and the Chinese government has sort of become exhibit A for how an authoritarian government can actually adapt and survive in, in, in the internet age. And um, I, I think there's a, a number of lessons for all of us in, in that. And it sort of pokes holes, I think, in some of the assumptions that we sometimes have um, about uh, automatically the internet is just going to set everybody free as, as long as you have enough of it. Um, but I, I start the, the book with a, a story when uh, one night, it was around uh, 1997 or so, uh, I was having dinner with some Chinese friends in a very delicious Sichuan restaurant. And I had just finished reading a book by a British historian named Timothy Garton Ash uh, about East Germany right after the wall fell. And he tells the story of how people could suddenly access their secret police files, their Stasi files. And there were all kinds of shocking revelations that, that took place. People, some people discovered that their spouse had been spying on them, informing on them for years, and this was all the documentation was, was in their file. Or their children had been informing on them, or their parents, or their neighbors, or other close friends. And so, it created a real crisis for a lot of people, of course. And, and uh, uh, after this started happening to some people, other people decided they didn't want to go see their files at all. They just wanted to, to move on. So I, I talked about this book that I just read um, in English. The book was in English. We were, we were chatting in Chinese over dinner. And I described the book. And one of my friends put his chopsticks down, kind of looked around the table and said, one of these days, something like that's gonna happen in China 
and then I'll know who my real friends are. And the entire table went silent. <laughs> um, it was a very uncomfortable moment, and exactly why it was so uncomfortable, of course, uh, nobody's quite sure. But um, one of the things that I've come to realize is, as I've been studying the internet and, and looking at how the Chinese Communist Party has sort of survived these new technologies and how citizens and, and governments are, are interacting, is, is that if and when China does change politically, um, if and when people can see their files, it's not going to be about who was informing on you anymore. It's going to be reams and reams of your email transcripts and your cell phone text messages and the logs of your geolocation on, on your phone and other devices. It's going to be key logging records from the spyware that got installed on your computer surreptitiously, either through a virus in an email or maybe the cleaning lady, uh, you know, installing something on your machine. Um, uh, yeah, you know, but it's, it's going to be largely electronic and impersonal and very comprehensive is what people are going to find. And interestingly, in Egypt last year, um, there was a, a period of time, um, about two months after the Mubarak regime fell, uh, when activists were able to get into the state security headquarters. And there, there were a couple of days where people were sort of breaking into files and, and going through reams of material that, that the, um, the state security officers had sort of left behind. And, and there were some activists who'd actually been held in these facilities who kind of went into the rooms that, where they were held and interrogated and sometimes tortured and kind of people walking through with their cell phone cameras and tweeting it live. And there was this one night where I was sitting in my home in Washington, D.C., kind of watching this Twitter stream of people describing, you know, what they were finding in, in these, um, in these buildings. Um, but one of the things that people found was, of course, their files, or some people found their files, or files of other people they knew. And what was it? It was email records, it was cell phone communications, uh, it was cell phone text messages, it was uh, material captured from, from people's computers um, when they were sending it back and forth. Uh, and uh, a couple of activists also found some contracts um, that had been sent by uh, Western companies to the Egyptian intelligence forces for what's known as deep packet inspection equipment um, to assist in, in this type of surveillance. And even though the Mubarak regime has fallen, um, there is a military transitional government that has uh, still been locking people up and, and you know, the, the transition is contentious in, in Egypt to say the least. And activists there are assuming that this technology is still being deployed um, and that while they are, of course, using the internet to communicate, um, they have to uh, be very careful about their security and that there are some conversations, some communications, some types of organizing that you're best not doing electronically. Um, and in Tunisia, you know, and, and we've just 
recently had the, the anniversary of the Arab Spring, and so I talk a bit about, about the Arab Spring in, in the book. Um, in Tunisia, there's a very interesting debate going on. Tunisia's had a somewhat more smooth transition after their dictator fell in January last year. Um, and th there was an election for a constituent assembly that's now writing the constitution. Uh, and there's a great deal of debate about how to build institutions uh, for a democracy in an Islamic state that can be a sustainable and genuine democracy and allow for debate, allow for dissent, allow for rights to be protected. A lot of debate going on about how to do that, sort of this constitutional moment. But one of the other things that's going on is that censorship got reinstated on the, on the Tunisian inter internet. Not to the same degree as it was happening under the Ben Ali dictatorship, but there are constituencies calling on their democratically ele elected representatives to protect children from obscene material. And so certain pages need to be blocked. And that there's certain hate speech that ought to be blocked because it's not good for society. Uh, and so there's a, a kind of a, a, court, a court case that's going on that's been appealed all the way up to their equivalent of the Supreme Court about how this should be handled um, and how what should the role be of censorship in a democratic society. And if there are certain constituencies calling on their democratically elected representatives to block certain content because people feel that it's socially harmful, you know, who, who decides what gets blocked? How do you make sure the power to block content doesn't get abused, that there isn't mission creep? How do you hold uh, people with that power to block content accountable? And a lot of the activists who were involved with organizing the protests that helped bring down the regime are saying, no, we, we, can't, go this, we can't go this way. Uh, we can't allow centralized censorship because it's going to be mission creep and it's going to take us back, maybe not all the way back to where we were, but closer than we want to be. Um, and we need to have not only a constitution and not only network, and not only kind of institutions and processes that support democracy, but we need to have technology and our technical infrastructure needs to support uh, to, needs to support. Um, democracy, and that you need to make sure that on your internet service providers and on the platforms that are running in Tunisia, um, that it's not kind of defaulting in favor of the people who hold the greatest power at any given point in time, which would, of course, make it harder for dissent to succeed um, or opposition to succeed. And so they're having a huge debate. And they, you know, kind of look around the world and they see actually in Western countries we're also having similar debates about what is the appropriate role of censorship and surveillance in a democracy. And we just actually had a, a huge debate uh, in Washington and around the country around uh, a piece of legislation called the Stop Online Piracy Act um, and its sister bill in, uh, in the Senate called uh, the Protect IP Act. And... These, this legislation was seeking to solve a very specific problem of copyright violation uh, and infringement of copyrighted materials on the internet and the fact that overseas websites are, are very hard to deal with if they're distributing pirated material and what do you do about it. 
but civil liberties groups um, and a lot of international activists were very concerned about the remedies that were being sought because it would institute a system of blocking websites and a system whereby um, uh, internet platforms um, and social media companies and so on would be held responsible to a much greater degree than before for what their users are doing and held responsible for preventing their users from, you know, in the law, it's stopping copyrighted material, you know, co stopping copyright violation, stopping infringement, but there was a great deal of concern that these mechanisms could get abused. And again, how do you prevent mission creep? How do you prevent abuse of the power once, once that's put into the infrastructure um, and put into the regulatory system? So you know, we had a huge debate and Wikipedia shut itself down for, for a day in protest and a lot of internet companies were you know, sort of internet companies versus Hollywood, but there was also a lot of human rights groups um, who were ended up being on the side of the internet companies because they were concerned about collateral damage for free speech, not only in this country, but actually a, a number of Tunisian activists that I happen to know and that I work with were really concerned about this legislation because they were afraid that people, uh, that politicians in their country would point to it and say, you know, well, Americans are doing this, so why can't we um, to, to resolve our own problems? Um, and then another issue I talk about in the book is uh, what I call the sovereigns of cyberspace and the fact that uh, even if Tunisia or, or any country for that matter kind of gets it all right within their own democratic nation state, there are a lot of forces um, that they, they don't have control over. And while Facebook and Twitter were very helpful and very powerful, to activists and in, in bringing down some nasty regimes and continue to be very helpful to people staging protests around the world and Occupy Wall Street and you know everything, the Occupy movement and so on are, are all using these tools. Um, you also have uh, companies like Google and Facebook on which we're increasingly depending kind of for our political discourse and our political organizing, um, setting rules for how our identity is managed who knows what about us, how much privacy we have, um, whether we have to use the service using our real name or not. Uh, and sometimes, you know, oftentimes setting these rules, usually uh, for commercial reasons, um, uh, in, in terms of how you govern the service so that it can be a successful commercial venture, um, and often not considering the, the consequences that these decisions are gonna have for people's human rights, for their freedom of expression, for their ability to organize, particularly in authoritarian countries, but, but also uh, in democracies uh, as well. And so there was a, uh, there's been a number of problems that activists have actually ended up having with Facebook, despite the fact that they rely on it heavily to organize protests. Um, one being that the, the privacy policies kind of change suddenly from time to time and activists who are trying to use Facebook to get information out and to, to, to kind of bring communities of protest together but may not want authorities to know who their friends are because that would expose their friends. And then suddenly if, if the settings change and, and in 2009 there was a situation when one day uh, the, the privacy settings by default um, 
had your friend's network not visible, and then the next day suddenly your friend's network was visible by default. Uh, and there were a lot of people in Iran who were quite freaked out because uh, by the end of 2009, the Green Revolution activists were already uh, discovering that the, when they got arrested, the police would interrogate them about you know who they were connected to on Facebook. Um, and uh, would also look at people's networks to see who was connected to whom and who else they needed to put under surveillance um, and who they needed to go after. And so this left uh, a lot of people in a very vulnerable position. Um, Facebook also has this real name policy, and uh, which according to their terms of service, um, you're supposed to use Facebook using your real name. And of course, a lot of people do use fake names on Facebook, and if you're not all that kind of controversial or famous or all that active, you'll probably get away with violating the terms of service in that regard. But if you're highly visible and highly active and have a lot of activity going on and you're, send you're acting like an activist and, you're, and, you, and you become very popular um, and you're not using your real name, it's likely that somebody who doesn't like you will report you for a terms of service violation and then, because you're violating the terms of service, the, the uh, administrators of the site will shut down your account or freeze your account or freeze the pages that you're running. And so there was a group of activists in Egypt running an anti-torture page, which ended up in January of last year being a key hub for organizing of the first day of the, the January 25th demonstrations that resulted in the, the massive Tahrir Square protests that brought the regime down. But in, in November, uh, the year before, um, on the night before a huge protest they were organizing, their page went down because the administrators were, uh, had created the page under fake names because they didn't want to be arrested and, and tortured. Um, and, uh, but, you know, it was a terms of service violation, and so, so it was shut down. And so they were only able to get, get it reinstated because the people running it had connections with international human rights groups and some people in Silicon Valley who called up the right people at Facebook who then found another Egyptian person in the United States who was willing to kind of take over administration of the page. It, you know, but then, you know, that they were lucky. <laughs> there are a lot of people using these services, and I'm using Facebook as an example, that I talk about a lot of different companies in, in the book, but you know, the, these, these, these companies are making choices about what you can and cannot do and how your relationships work in your dis digital lives. Um, and there, uh, you know, there are varying degrees of consideration for how this affects your political rights, how this affects um, your, your ability to operate in a democratic society. So in the book, you know, I, I talk about the fact that there's a lot of arguments that go on about, okay, well, how much did the internet, how big a role did it really play in any protest? Or, you know, how much, you know, when it comes to organizing, when it comes to political change, how important is the internet really? Or is it really about kind of good old fashioned shoe leather on the ground uh, protests, and there's clearly a combination. And then there's a lot of arguments about does the internet help the good guys more, or does it help the bad guys more? 
And is it making it stupid or is it making us smarter or is it, you know, aiding bad people and criminals more than it's aiding the good people or, or what? And, uh, you know, of course, the Internet's aiding and empowering pretty much everybody who, who is good at using it. Um, and so I, I tend to feel that a lot of these debates, at least when we're thinking about the future of our freedoms and, and the future of democracy, are, are somewhat b beside the point. Um, or at least I think not the most urgent question to think about. I think the most urgent question is citizens and, and the people who care about the future of democracy, future of our own freedoms, future of kind of human freedom generally, um, is, is more the question of how do we ensure that the internet evolves in a way that's compatible with the kind of society that we want to have, the kind of freedoms and rights that we want to have, and the kinds of freedoms and rights that people around the world are aspiring to and risking their, their life to achieve um, every day in, in different places. Um, and the internet is not uh, like the air or the water, you know, it's not some kind of chemical compound that is naturally just that way. Uh, what you can do or can't do on the internet um, or with digital technology is the result of the decisions and actions of many human beings. And they could have made different decisions and act actions and the internet could be different. It could be more centralized. It, it, might, it could be impossible to be anonymous. I mean, it's already not easy, but uh, it's still possible. Um, you know, the extent to which you can be tracked, the, the extent to which you can uh, maintain your own security. Uh, on the internet, these are all things that can change. Um, the extent to which a user on the edges can create their own software and innovate and not need permission um, from somewhere, um, as you would like with a phone network, for instance. Um, this is all, it depends on how things evolve. Um, and so my argument is that we need to think as kind of we need to think about the internet and think about our kind of digital lives, not just as users of the technology, uh, but really as kind of citizens of this, these digital spaces. And just as, you know, in, if we're residents of the city of, of Los Angeles, um, you know, how pleasant this city is or how unlivable it is, uh, it's it's up to the residents to a great extent. You know who who are you voting in to govern your city? How how are you contributing to a livable community? Um, or are you just kind of sitting there and expecting that uh, somebody else is going to sort it all out for you? Um, and similarly with with the internet. I mean, just as you know, the the, the famous saying that you know you get the the government you deserve um, if you're in a democracy. Um, in, in many ways, I think we're going to get the internet we deserve. Uh, and if we're proactive, if we think actively about, you know, make choices about what kinds of services I'm using, make it known to the companies that run the platforms and services we depend on when we feel that things that they're doing are unacceptable. We still want to use their products. We don't want to quite leave yet, but you know, will you please you know, talk to us? And so I think there's starting to be groups that are um, engaging directly with companies to, to try and get them to change policies in different ways, but also just to, to be vocal 
um, to be vocal as an investor, to be to as as a voter, to be paying attention to the laws that are being passed in this country that relate to how the internet's regulated, um, the extent to which uh, surveillance is taking place in a manner that is much less accountable uh, in digital spaces than it is uh, in our physical spaces. Um, to what extent is due process um, and accountability um, being followed uh, both by government and by companies. Um, and we need to kind of hold everybody who's, who's exercising power um, in our digital lives accountable and demand that that power be constrained just as we do in our physical lives. And, and the whole point of democracy um, I think <laughs> is is uh, to constrain power. You know, we we have government because we need services. We want security. You know, there are lots of reasons why we don't want kind of a Hobbesian state of nature where we just all run around doing whatever we feel like, and you know, there's no organization. There's a reason why we have governance in our physical world, and that we benefit from some kind of governance. Um, and, but that governance needs to be accountable. That governance needs to be based on consent of the governed, not based on some kind of fiat. Uh, and what's key about democracy when it works is the extent to which abuse of power is checked and constrained and balanced against and held accountable. And so one of the, the issues I raise in the book is that in a globally interconnected digital space, digital world that we have, kind of this globally inter interconnected cyberspace, one of the problems is, is we don't have the right mechanisms at the moment um, or the right political movements, you know, the, the, the right kind of public pushback to constrain the abuse of power across these global digital networks. Um, or to even understand how power is being exercised, um, how to hold it uh, how, how to hold it com um, accountable, how to keep it in check, um, what kinds of is it whether it's institutions or just actions um, that need to take place in order to ensure that power is not abused. That when one government passes a law that affects major internet companies, which then affects all their users all over the world um, who can't vote these guys out of office, you know, that's kind of an accountability mismatch going on. Um, or when companies are making decisions about how these digital spaces should be governed, um, and they say, well, we, you know, we have consent because you clicked agree on the terms of service, and. <laughs> You know, uh, and and plus, you know, our serve every. You know, we have more and more users every day, and so therefore, you know, we must be fine. Um, it, it, I, maybe it's fine for a lot of people, but there's also a lot of people for whom it's not fine, who are finding themselves quite dependent on these technologies, and we need to find ways to push back and um, let companies know that. Uh, their kind of long-term success will depend on our trust and that our trust de depends on them listening to us um, and uh, being accountable to our rights. Um, and 
just finally, because I, I know we're running out of time and we want to get to questions, when it comes to the corporate space, um, I talk a bit about um, internet companies and telecommunications companies and their responsibilities for our freedom of expression, for our privacy, for our human rights, and that companies really need to start thinking about these uh, issues and these responsibilities have almost in a framework of sustainability. You know, it, it's taken many years uh, and it's still always a struggle, but companies, at least some companies, have come to recognize that they have responsibilities towards the environment, they have responsibilities to not hire 10-year-olds, um, that there are human rights responsibilities in terms of labor, in terms of workforce well-being, uh, and there is a whole kind of investment sector that's r risen up around socially responsible investment, uh, and th this notion that a, a company's long-term value is tied to its sustainable behavior and the extent to which it's contributing to a sustainable community that, that, that the way in, it, you know, whether or not its behavior and its business is compatible with the survival of the planet matters on a lot of different levels. Um, and that's a constant struggle and the extent to which, which there are successes in, in, that, uh, in that realm is all due to tremendous public activism over many decades. Um, and we've now gotten to a point where companies, I, I call it digital sustainability, and we need to ensure that the companies that run the, the, platform, the digital platforms and services we depend on are contributing to sustainable and viable political society that we want and are contributing to the kind of democracy that we aspire for ourselves and for our children and that people are risking their lives for every day. And, and that that kind of sustainability um, is, is vital um, to, to get internet and telecommunications companies and technology companies to, to recognize. Um, and you know, it's, it's taken a while to even get parts of industry to recognize this when it comes to the environment and it's always a constant uh, struggle. Um, but now we need to think about sustainability even more broadly to include free expression and privacy and to ensure that these digital platforms and networks that we now depend upon for our relationship with our governments as well as for everything else are compatible with political discourse, dissent, whistleblowing, unpopular speech. And um, that's, I, th I think, going to be a vital um, component of whether or not our democracy can continue to improve and and thrive and survive in the long run and the extent to which democracy elsewhere around the world uh, and you know, places from Tunisia and Egypt to, to other younger democracies will succeed or not. So with that, I will stop and uh, we can have a discussion. How scary do you think it is that with all the e-commerce that we have happening on the internet mm -hmm. that companies and people that you do business with via payments are able to go ahead and track and monitor mm -hmm. and do know exactly what you're buying, 
where you're visiting and doing things of that nature via cookies and all the other interesting things that um, go along with shopping on the internet. It's one of these things that in theory should be a trade-off. I mean, you know, in theory people are consenting to this for the sake of convenience and being able to shop online as opposed to having to go to the mall and park and so on. Um, but in, in reality people are often not aware what's being gathered and tracked. There's not sufficient kind of transparency or accountability about how this information then gets used or potentially abused <coughs> and also the extent to, to which in a law enforcement investigation it can be collected and, and used in ways that, that could be in, at times bizarre um, you know, or you know, scary um, that triangulations get made that, that um, uh, can lead to uh, a lot of really unfortunate things. Um, so yeah, it is a real concern, and you know, companies say they need to do this, of course, in order to provide better products and so on. And you know, to some extent, that probably is true. You know, that. that but at the same time, um, I think they're not doing nearly enough job, a good enough job at being clear about what's happening, what's being gathered, uh, providing options to opt out if people want to opt out. Um, and the ability to kind of know what's been gathered about you. And there are laws in parts of Europe where you can actually uh, request from a company everything it has on you. Um, and uh, quite a number of people have done that, and that kind of also kind of helps to, to, to hold and check what, what companies are doing. Um, but, yeah, uh, we, we, we definitely need much more clarity and accountability and the ability of people opt in and opt out and have more choice about how their information gets shared and under what circumstances um, because I think people really do feel they're losing control um, and it shouldn't have to be that way. I, I was born in India, the world's largest democracy, the most vibrant press, so I'm a mm. complete proponent of freedom of speech. Yeah. Having said that, what does why is it always that the Western press feels that mm. the entire world must go along their principles, their values, and mm. their ideas of freedom of speech, etc.? Right. For example, in a country like India, mm -hmm. 13, 14 major religions, the slightest nonsense that somebody can put on the internet mm. could start a riot of thousands of people don't you think that sometimes government should mm -hmm. do something to make sure that a certain level of uh, modicum I know, is maintained mm -hmm. in the country? Yeah, no, I mean, activists are fine, but sometimes who are we to say? If right. I was a Coptic Christian today, mm -hmm. I would not be very happy about what's happening in Egypt. No, there's a tremendous debate going on about this in India right now. And, and, and I know people on both sides of, of that argument, and the, and, and the Indian government has sort of been demanding, or rec recently made a, a demand that Google and Facebook delete a bunch of content because it was ha hate speech, considered hate speech, and, and there are a lot of serious issues about that. Um, and there are also many civil liberties and human rights activists inside India who are not, you know, uh, white Anglo-Saxon people, but are, are people from, from India um, uh, who are concerned about the way, the way in which the government has chosen to deal with these problems and feel that there should be other solutions um, rather than censor at the center. Um, and, and so, 
Yeah, I mean, how do you ensure that, how, how do you address hate, crime, violence, um, and how do you address the unfortunate fact that sometimes, that oftentimes, or you know, increasingly, uh, people use the internet to organize um, very nasty things against people they don't like, um, with the fact that it's often very subjective about you know one person's dissident is is another person's terrorist um, in some countries, and um, how do you again ensure that this power is not being abused? And, and what's the appropriate mechanism? And in India, the, you know, this is a tremendous debate, and and this debate has, you know, go, been going on in a lot of countries. Um, some, I was talking to somebody yesterday who spent a fair amount of time in Indonesia, where they also have similar issues, um, where the government has actually resorted less to censorship and more about reaching out to community leaders and working with law enforcement on the ground in communities and keeping an eye on these conversations, these hateful conversations that are happening, but then going and talking, dealing with the human beings um, rather than kind of centralized blocking and censorship of, of uh, material. Um, so there, there's a lot of debate going on, I think, in a lot of countries, and, and one can list any number of kind of social, pro you know, legitimate and serious social problems um, that arise from bad people using the internet. Um, and, and child exploitation is, is another one um, that people are very torn up about in, in many countries. Um, and, it, you know, I, I think the question is, does censoring, it just sort of deleting content or blocking content end up solving the problem? Um, or do you end up just putting a Band-Aid on the problem? Uh, and, and what are sort of the unintended sort of collateral damage to the ability of other groups to actually criticize the government legitimately when, you know, it, it, can, it can be very difficult to prevent this power from being abused, even in democracies. Um, and, you know, on, there's been some interesting research, actually, when it comes to censorship of child pornography in Europe, and there's quite a number of countries that, that have national-level censorship systems in place to, to filter out child porn sites. And there's been some research on whether or not this actually reduces the physical exploitation of children and the preliminary research coming out is that it actually hasn't reduced the number of children being kidnapped and exploited, and it hasn't reduced the, you know, the people who are really seeking this material are getting it anyway. Um, and that if you're actually physically going to rescue children from awful crimes, that censoring ends up just putting a Band-Aid on the problem so people don't see it without actually law enforcement or, or community solutions being deployed to, to prevent the harm from actually happening to the human beings. So I, I guess the point is, I, I think you're absolutely right that these concerns are do require respect and serious, um, you know, they should not be dismissed. Um, and you know the fact that you know that in a number of countries you've had situations where people use social media to organize like the burning of a village or something, uh, and that's awful. Um, 
and and that there's one should never kind of diminish or dismiss how awful that is. Um, but then the, the the question is just just as a society, um, oftentimes the easiest solution is censorship and surveillance. But is that really going to solve the problem, or does it just make the politicians feel good that they've done something? Because everybody's calling on them to do something, and so then they've done something. Um, and so I, I think that's that's the the caution. Um, that we need to think about because I think a lot of democratically elected governments around the world um, you know, see a problem that has arisen on the internet and apply, apply a solution to it to fix the problem um, without sufficient consideration about what other rights um, and what other problems that solution is going to create. Um, and in the long term, just how that's going to affect the ability of the democracy to actually remain a democracy. Um, and it's really tough, and these are really hard problems, and there are a lot of life and death serious issues on all sides, um, which is why I think it's just really important, um, and I, I talk about this as well, for to have really a broad discussion amongst the world's democratic governments about you know, what are the kind of red lines or core principles that a democratic government needs to think about when seeking to regulate the internet and solve serious tough problems um, that come across the internet or that are empowered by or amplified by the internet? And how do we do that as democracies um, in a manner that doesn't erode our nature as democracies? And, and that, that is the, it's really hard. Um, but I, I think, you know, if, if democracies don't try and lead the way in admitting that it's a hard problem and you don't just kind of fix it like you fix a toaster and that, you know, th there are all these trade-offs we have to deal with just as we do in our physical governance contexts. You know, if we want zero crime in L.A., what's the trade-off? Um, and so we're, we're, we're used to thinking about governance and problem solving in physical communities as a set of trade-offs and, and also oftentimes as, as a set of softer solutions. You know? So law enforcement over time has found that it, you're, you're gonna do a better job policing a community and, and uh, diminishing crime if you work with the community and you develop buy-in and, 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 and you have a community engagement on, on the solutions rather than just kind of the punitive, um, which kind of causes everybody to feel that you lack legitimacy. Um, and so kind of on the internet, similarly, how, how to kind of apply those, those types of lessons. So I noticed that these large intractable problems seem to be a kind of a cognitive dissonance uh, on this whole issue. Uh, I noticed that you among, you know, are not the least among many writers who, who like to use the Hobbesian model <laughs> of, of the dystopia that uh, society without an enlightened band of, of, of uh, rulers uh, who shepherd us from our worst uh, uh, impulses are absolutely necessary to have a free and, and sane mm -hmm. and rational society with the evidence uh, to the contrary all around us. Um, I noticed that the internet uh, is largely an uncentrally planned 
mm-hmm. place, which has largely grown up from uh, a, a spontaneous order, people cooperating because it's in their best interest to do so. Mm-hmm. And it's the central planner governments that seem to be standing ready to screw it up that mm-hmm. we have to keep defending it from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I ask you, to, how do you reconcile, mm-hmm. on the one hand, uh, the liberty of individuals finding solutions to problems? You keep talking about community stuff, and, and mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the way to go. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that there were companies keeping databases on us. Well, mm-hmm. I invite you to, to I, I don't really, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I don't really care as much about what businesses know about no, me as one. what governments mm-hmm. know about Absolutely. me because the governments have the power mm-hmm. of violence against us. Um, how, how do you reconcile the position you seem to be taking on the one hand that we need to have a central planned authority otherwise? I didn't say that. Oh, well, that's <laughs> well, kind of what me, I got from your Okay. Seat. I'm actually quite critical of Hobbes, and I see we need to, on the internet, we may, need to move from Hobbes to Locke. Um, because uh, actually, you know, Facebook is a Hobbesian form of government that's saying, you know, we, we need to bring order and you make trade-offs and you need an enlightened ruler. And what we need to do is find a way to move more towards Lockean governance on the Internet. Um, Lockean management of problems, Lockean management of private systems that people depend on. Um, I also never said that we want central planning. I've, and you know, I've 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 never written that. I've never argued that. And I think having governance and having th- th- there's a difference between having governance that is based on consent and central planning. It's not the same thing. Um, and absolutely, the internet. I, I have a whole chapter on the digital commons and the importance of communities who are innovating for all kinds of reasons and creating software, technical standards, platforms, and so on that people use. But I think the also, also the, and, and I also agree with you, and if you read my book, you'll find I too am more concerned about what our governments know um, necessarily than what companies are, are collecting. And what frightens me the most is when you combine what the companies are doing, if you combine unaccountable corporate behavior with unaccountable government behavior, that's the absolute scariest. Um, And so we need to find ways to constrain that. So when I talk about governance, I'm not talking about central planning. I'm talking about constraint of power and and ways that we hold it accountable. And frankly, I don't think world governance of the internet makes any sense at all, uh, any more than I want the United Nations running the internet, which would be a disaster. And I talk about that in the book for exactly why it would be a disaster. Um, And we probably are going to be coming up with a lot of decentralized, small pieces, loosely joined types, solutions to constraining power. The problem is we just don't have any, you know, right now we're not constraining power. Um, And we need to find a way to do that. So I think you and I actually agree, and I'm I'm sorry if if what I said totally misrepresented what I actually think. I was uh, particularly interested in some of your conversation regarding uh, SOPA and PIPA blowback that uh, occurred in the last month. Uh, it seems rather extraordinary that it coalesced in a very short period of time, and I was just sort of curious about your perspectives on that and any lessons that might hold. It certainly has a few for the MPAA, I suspect, but mm-hmm. I mean, more generally, uh, any lessons it may have for both folks. Uh, concerned about concentration of power and about the way we um, 
try to create the internet we want. In this country, definitely, people kind of woke up to a lot of lawmaking around the internet that happens in this country with little, with very little attention being paid, very little media coverage, and a lot of laws being passed that no.